pastor's kid, have been my entire life. Um, I accepted Jesus when I was like four. When I got to like middle school, um, I started to have people comment on my size. Um, so I developed like a body image issue, but like not in the way everyone thinks. So everyone would say how tiny I was. They would comment on how small I was. They would like compare me to their pinky or to like a twig. Um, which are like not meaningful things to compare someone to. And so like that went on for years and years. Had a time in my life when developmentally I'm trying to figure out who I am. And so that became a lot of who I was. And it became a lot of like, I started to hear you're so small as you're too small. When I got to college, it happened again. You know, new environment, new people. Um, new context, and so people would start to say, oh my gosh, you're so small, you're so tiny. And I heard it once again as you're too small and you're too tiny. So I started to change my behaviors so that people would quit saying it. I would not eat around certain people. I would wear much baggier clothes, would wear my hair down a lot to hide how thin my neck was. There was no, I've never been diagnosed with like, any sort of body dysmorphia disorder. But I think like if I had let it get to a point, I could have been there. Um, but yeah, there was no like anorexia or bulimia involved. And then when I was a junior in college, just a couple years ago, I had a friend call me. Um, it had been a particularly hard day. He calls me and he goes, hey, I'm, I wanna read to you out of the Bible. And I was like, okay kind of weird, but all right. He read to me the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. Um, so like the first chapter is all about, you know, God creating all of the things, you know, earth and the sky, um, the sun, the moon, the stars, the plants and animals. Then he reads Genesis chapter two. And in chapter two, it talks about how God created Adam and Eve. And after every day of creation, everything he had created, he looked at it and he said it was good. And then he looks at the creation of Adam and Eve, and he says, this is very good. My friend paused really dramatically on the phone after he got through reading, and he goes, Ken's, you weren't created as just good. Like, God looked at you, and he said, you are very good. And, like, that was a couple years ago, and, like, yes, it sunk in, and I, like, was able to get through college and be fine um, and not, like, have as many of those issues. I came here and started working here at Union Chapel, and it started happening again. Um, and it had been a long time since it had happened, and it, like, threw me for a loop. People were commenting on how small I was. I got the comment once, you're a lot smaller than I thought you would be. It's like... It's like, oh, okay. Um, people would comment on my eating habits. And so like it just started to like really wear me down. Um, but God is so cool because he, he blessed me with this amazing group of friends here that like saw past my size and saw more than just like a small person who like doesn't eat at normal times. And you know, they, they loved me in ways that I needed to be loved and have shown me the love of God in a very different way than I've ever experienced before. And I think that 
through even just this last year of being here, it's been really cool to see how God has like redeemed that part of my life through his people. Good morning, all. Great to see you. Hang up my mask. Part of our accessory now these days, right? Everybody's got their mask all the time. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. We're so pleased that you're here. If you're joining us online, of course, welcome to you as well. Glad you're with us. And I don't know about you, but these days are very challenging, aren't they? Uh, That's kind of the understatement. Here's what I've discovered. And I'll just uh, share, share it with you. I've discovered that my emotional and my mental well-being is much better when I spend less of my time thinking about and tuning into current events, racial unrest, political division, all the fussing, fighting, the, the, the nuisance which is the coronavirus, Spending less time focused on that and more time focused on my faith, on my relationship with Jesus, my awareness of the hopefulness that he provides to me, not only today in this moment, but forevermore. And so I just give you that little piece of advice for what it's worth. Spend more time focusing on Jesus, less on the problems, and you'll be better for it, much better for it. So be encouraged by that and know that God is a good God. He's faithful. And we will pop through the other end of this better for it. I'm very excited about the series that we're beginning uh, this weekend. It's entitled The Power of the Story. We all have a story. You have a story. I have a story. All God's children have a story. And God is very, very interested in our story. Not only for what it is, but also for what it can become in his good plan for our lives. All of us are perfect candidates for change and transformation. Every one of us. We all have parts of us that are not like Jesus that he would like to pull out of us and other aspects of our lives that he wants to be more like him so that we can have a better story all the way to the end. So I've chosen as our text today from John's Gospel, chapter 4. We are going to, over these weeks, find Jesus interacting in relationship with individuals that they find not only meaningful, but transformative. Their lives are completely and totally changed as a result of their encounter with Jesus. And today I want to talk about the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And again, John chapter four, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to read some selected verses beginning at verse one. And of course, we'll project the words on the screen. Our custom is to stand, so as you're able, thanks for doing that to honor God's word. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
Now, his disciples had gone into town to buy food, you know, Chick-fil-A. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? You greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, look, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said, well, you're right. When you say you have no husband, fact is, You've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, to, to verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior. May God inspire and encourage us, instruct us through his word today. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Uh, I really enjoy the movies. Uh, I know many of you do as well. And I have my favorites. Now, I get asked these questions from time to time, and I've made a little list here of my favorite movies. Uh, this may date me a little bit, so you'll have to forgive that. S some of you younger people in the room won't recognize any of these movies, perhaps. But my favorite romantic comedy in that genre of all time is when Harry met Sally. This uh, featured Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. There's a particularly interesting scene in the diner in that, uh, in that movie. I won't say any more about that. My favorite sports movie of all time is Hoosiers. I mean, is there another option? It, obviously, uh, that would be my favorite. The whole ambiance of that movie Every second of that movie, I identify with, like most of us in Indiana do. Uh, I grew, when I grew up, I, you know, I attended a school that looked just like that school. I was in a gym just like that gym. I can smell, see, taste, hear, and touch every scene of that movie. I'm just absorbed by it, and so it's my favorite. The only difference uh, between my, my experience is uh, when I took the last shot, I missed that's it. Only difference. <laughs> My favorite uh, old-timey movie, you know, old black and white movie, is a movie called Sergeant York. Uh, this uh, featured Gary Cooper, who depicted Tennessean Alvin York, who was a World War I uh, Medal of Honor winner. Uh, it's a remarkable story of this man's journey 
uh, into a conversion to Christianity and then sorting out how that all played in his military career. Uh, the most frequently used phrase in the movie is, uh, many times uh, Gary Cooper, Cooper will use the phrase, the Lord sure does work in sp- mysterious ways. And I, I just love the movie. I uh, turned both of our sons on this movie, and a few years ago, our youngest son, Isaac, was in a retail store, and the, and the, the guy behind the counter that day had a name tag on, and it was, it was something York. And just out of, out of curiosity, Isaac said, you wouldn't happen to be related to Alvin York of World War I fame. And the kid looked at him and says, I am his great-great-grandson. Isn't that interesting? And so they had a little conversation there about this movie. Uh, great movie. I encourage you to look at it. It's really quite inspiring. My favorite uh, comedy of all time uh, is a Mel Brooks uh, production called Young Frankenstein. Uh, it was shot in black and white just for effect, uh, but it's funny. Just about every scene in the movie has a, has a chuckle in it, and so I find that humor. You can see where my problems start, perhaps. I also like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, it's kind of a second place in the comedy section. My favorite science fiction movie of all time, now there's been so much sci-fi in the last 20 years that you say, well, how can you possibly put a label on your favorite the best sci-fi movie that's ever been produced is the first Alien movie. That movie was intense, and it got your attention. Those aliens were nasty, and, um, and, you, and, you, and you feel it. So I like that. A close second is the movie Predator. This is an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. This kind of you know, puts me into, into that macho thing. Uh, the premise of this movie is Schwarzenegger is leading this band of special forces guys in the jungles of Central America, and they don't know what they're dealing with, but it, but it finally occurs to all of them that they're being hunted by an alien predator who shows up on planet Earth on occasion and starts hunting human beings. And it's uh, very intense, and uh, I like it a lot. My, my favorite movie of all time and there isn't a close second. There, every other movie pales in comparison to this one. And it's an epic movie uh, produced back in the day, 1959. It was the first production of the movie Ben-Hur. Uh, this starred Charlton Heston and uh, is the story of a man and his family living in Palestine at the same time Jesus was walking the earth. And you follow the story of this man. It's it's a three hour movie. I mean, you got to. It's a commitment, and you follow it. Now, when you say ben, the original Ben Hur movie, everybody who's familiar with it immediately thinks about the chariot race, because uh, that cinematography was phenomenal. How they shot that the way they did is very intense, very impressive. Uh, it's as good a movie scene as you will find in any production at any time in history. And uh, everybody refers to the chariot races as remarkable. That is not my favorite scene in the movie. There are, there are four or five occasions in a three-hour movie where Jesus actually appears on screen. But the, part of the brilliance of the production is you never see his face. You see people responding, reacting to his face. But you never see his face. 
any close-up of Jesus in the movie is from behind or from the side or from a distance. And so so Ben-Hur has these moments when he brushes up against Jesus himself. And it's very, very powerful. The most powerful scene in any movie ever produced, in my opinion. Uh, This is the last scene of the movie Ben-Hur. As a result of the persecution of the Jews under Roman occupation in Palestine during the days of Jesus, Ben-Hur is separated from his family and his mother and sister are placed in a Roman prison, a dungeon, left there for years. They become leprous and eventually end up in a leper colony and are dying of leprosy and the effects. And the last scene of the movie takes you all the way to the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus is being crucified and a huge storm comes up, it's dark as the Bible describes, and it begins to storm and to blow and to rain, and there's an earthquake. You have all of that dramatic effect. And in the meantime, Ben-Hur's mother and sister have been placed uh, by his love interest in the movie uh, in this little enclave, this cleft of a rock under a cliff, just down the hill from Calvary. And as I mentioned, these women are near death, especially his sister. She's dying. And as the rain falls and puddles up under the cross, where the blood of Jesus has now accumulated, the water and the blood mixed together now began to flow down this hill just by gravity. And as the blood of Jesus flows by these two women, they are healed physically healed. I've watched it 50 times in my life. I always weep when I see it. It is a very dramatic, very powerful moment. And if you haven't seen the movie or haven't seen it for a while, I'd encourage you to go check it out. Now you've got to make a three-hour commitment or just go to the last scene and pick it up there. Um, The reason we love to escape into movies is because they remind us of the human drama, which is our lives, isn't it? We're warmed by the love stories. We're excited by the adventure. We're challenged by the great success. We're moved by human nobility and achievement, uh, sacrificial giving of themselves. We're inspired by the miraculous work of God, sometimes depicted on screen. And also, there is this part of why we're attracted to movies, We can identify not only with all of the adventure and the excitement and the success and the achievement, but we can also identify with the weakness and the failure and the disappointment. We connect there. When the the story is told and there's a weakness or a failure or or an unusual disappointment, we, we can connect our lives to that. We have experiences too. We have a story. We've had, a, had some experiences. One line from such a movie was, my life just didn't turn out the way I thought it would. My life just didn't turn out the way I thought it would. I wonder how many of us would say the same thing. I don't know anyone who's lived a perfect life. I know people who seems to have lived a perfect life, but no one's done it perfectly, of course. And if you could protect, predict your future from the time you were a young person, it might go something like this, a plan A, a healthy, intact family, 
loving parents, meaningful faith formation, go to college, meet my soulmate, get a great job, raise beautiful children, build my dream home, retire to leisure. There it is, perfect. Uh, here's plan B. Uh, raised in a classically dysfunctional home, barely graduated from high school, leave college early with no direction for my life, uh, marry someone with as much or more baggage than I have, get a dead-end job, barely scraping by, growing to hate it more and more with each passing day. You know, you got the idea. The truth is that for most of us, our real life falls somewhere in between plan A and plan B. I know a lot of people started out with plan A, but they had to modify. Can I get a witness on modification? And when you go through life, you have to make the adjustments. You have, you have, to, you have to pivot. You have to be nimble. You have to respond. You have to react to challenges and difficulty and failure and crisis. And in the midst of that, a story is being built. A narrative of your life is being formed. And let me just say this, and I want you to hear this. This is the most important thing I may say through this whole series, and I'll probably repeat it. No one cares more about your story than God does. No one cares more about you then, as Jesus does. Jesus is literally God caring about the human condition. This is who Jesus is. His journey on the earth is a sequence of relationships that remind us of God's unique interest, care for us. And so as I mentioned, this series is going to find Jesus interacting with individuals whose lives are transformed and their stories are changed. Today we have focused on the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. Interesting about this woman, this is the person where we have a record of a one-on-one conversation with Jesus that is longer than any other one-on-one conversation Jesus has throughout the gospel. He spent more time interacting with this woman, perhaps, than anyone else. It's fascinating, isn't it? Here's something else. We don't know her name. We only know she's broken. She's broken in a thousand pieces. And she's alone, essentially alone in her brokenness in the world. And Jesus finds her. Well, I have three things to consider with this interaction Jesus had with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And the first is this on the outline. God, we learn clearly that God is a seeking God. Now, don't let that, don't, don't let that just be preacher talk and let it pass by you quickly. Hang on to it and absorb it as best you can. God is a seeking God. We know this is generally true. It's revealed in Broadway in this story. For example, God is not particular about the people he seeks. He's no respecter of persons. And so he'll seek everyone. This woman is nothing but trouble in her culture, but it didn't phase Jesus at all. It's like Jesus didn't have one moment of hesitation, one moment of wondering if this is appropriate. Not one second of that. Jesus immediately, as soon as this woman arrives at the well, I mean, he's just there resting. And this woman arrives at the well, and immediately he engages her. And it reminds us that God's love is never based on the righteousness of the person in question, but based rather on the quality of the love of God. Now think about that as it applies to you. God loves all people of every variety 
and state equally because of the nature of his character and not the lovability of the person. Now, that's good news for us, isn't it? (laughs) Because I can speak for myself. I'm not all that likable sometimes. I'm not lovable at all in my life sometimes. And yet God isn't hindered by that, hampered by that at all. The, the, the fact is that God's love for us is unconditional. He seeks us. He pursues us. He, he loves everybody, and he chases all of us because he cares about us, and he loves us. Turns out there's nothing you can do to make God love you more than he already does. Turns out there's nothing you, so bad you can do to make him love you any less. The, the unconditional love of God is an amazing characteristic of who the God we serve really is. So it's a general seeking He seeks everyone, and then there's purposeful seeking. Verse 4 says, now he had to go through Samaria. It's an interesting phrase. He had to go through Samaria. Judea to the south, Galilee to the north. He's, He's in Judea, and now he wants to go to Galilee, so he had to go through Samaria, which is in the middle. Well, You just look at geographically, and you go, well, yeah, that's right. He had to go through. But that's not actually literally true. The Jews had actually developed another route that would go around Samaria. So you could go through Samaria or you could go around Samaria. If you wanted to avoid these these mixed race of people, and and by the way, all this suggests to us is that that racial bigotry is alive and well in the time of Jesus because we don't like those Samaritans. And and so he had to go through. He literally didn't have to go through. So if you just read that on the surface, you think, well, of course, you know, he's going from south to north, so he's got to go through. But it's not true. He could have gone around. In this case, I really think that he was compelled to go, that he had a sense or a knowing about a particular woman that he needed to touch, who needed a new beginning, who needed a new story. And so we learn here that God's seeking is a general seeking, and it's also purposeful. God is a seeking God, and he's purposeful about seeking after people. And the third thing we might learn from this is that God is a seeking God in particular. Verse 7, he says to the woman, will you give me a drink? Now, this is in direct violation of the social and religious etiquette of the day. Maybe you've heard someone talk about this before. Men did not speak with women in public unless their husband was present. Rabbis made the rule that they couldn't speak with their sister, their daughter, or their wife in public. This is just a general rule for rabbis on top of the other cultural restrictions for men in general. Uh, A rabbi could talk to his mother in public. That's okay. But not his sister, his daughter, or his wife. Uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that some of these rabbis in the sect of the Pharisees were given the name the bruised and bloody Pharisees because anytime they'd see a woman, they'd put their head down and close their eyes and they kept running into stuff, walking into walls and poles, and they were always boogered up. So here is Jesus violating all of these rules. Jews didn't speak with Samaritans. Men don't speak with women. And rabbis have even more strict rules than that. So nothing about this encounter was coincidence or accident. I'm talking now about the particular seeking nature of God. You might be here today believing that nobody knows your story or cares about your story. You may be listening to me today and you may think that you're all alone. 
and without the interest of anyone, including God, nobody cares. And if you feel that, you believe that, you think that, listen to your pastor, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. Because there is a God in the heavens who knows your name, he knows your address, he knows, he knows your password, he knows your pen, he knows everything about you. And he's seeking you. He knows about your story. And he wants to meet you right where you are on the journey, bring transformation and change to your life so that your story can be better going forward. Amen? Wonderful thing. So it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done. God is seeking you. It's good news, isn't it? Now here's the second thought that I wanna, want you to consider. God views us just like he did the Samaritan woman. He views all of us through our potential. Through our potential. Verse 9, she asked him, how can you ask me for a drink? So God is willing to throw out all the cultural rules to reach this woman. He's willing to look past all the other stuff people look for, and he sees this woman's heart. He sees who she really is essentially as a person. He sees her potential. This request stunned her. It floored her. It shocked her. I mean, probably slack-jawed shocked her. The end of verse 9, for Jews do not associate. Don't associate with Samaritans. So Jesus was asking not just for water, but a drink from her cup. Jesus didn't have a cup. He didn't have a bucket. He didn't have a container. He didn't have anything. Hey, could you give me a drink of that water? She's holding a cup of water from her cup. She goes, no, no, sir. No, that's not proper. No, you don't want to drink from my cup. No. But he sees the potential in this girl that no one else has ever noticed. So it left her confused. It left her dazed. It left her wondering. And now imagine, if you can, it's hard for us. I, I, I doubt if we can do it. But if we could imagine being inside of this woman. Can you imagine what she's thinking, what she's feeling? Here is a man who's obviously kind of unique. He's not like your average guy that she's run into in her life. And he's reaching out to her in a way that would suggest that he cares about her and sees value in her. Now, she now begins to experience feelings and emotions and thoughts that she is unaccustomed to. This is, a, this, is a, this is an unusual moment for her, and she, it, it's confusing. Jesus said, look, you don't know who you're speaking with. I can give you living water so that you never thirst again. And she is still dazed and confused because she says, you don't have a cup to draw water. Where would you get such living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who drank from this well? I mean, you don't have anything to drink from. Don't tell me that you can give me water. You don't have what it takes to, to give water. Jesus said, look, dear, everyone who drinks the water from this well will drink again. But whoever drinks from the well I will provide will never thirst again all the way to eternal life. Now he has not only gone past her emotions, but now he has penetrated down to her spirit. 
and talking about eternal things and spiritual things and deep and meaningful uh, cosmic things. She has, she has to know something's up. Uh, perhaps with some anxiety in her voice and growing nervousness, she pushes back one more time. And this is our tendency, isn't it? When we have lived our lives in such a way that the story includes this pain and this brokenness and these wounds, and these are areas of our lives that we prefer not to have to go to because it's too painful, it's too hard to imagine Jesus allowing that part of our life to be healed and touched and redeemed and restored. It's too much. And so we push and we, we put up barriers and we keep people away and we keep, we keep God away. And so she pushes back one last time and she says, great, if you know about some water that I can drink so I don't have to haul myself up to this wall every day, you know, that'd be perfect. I'm all in. <laughs> she can't imagine because of the level of her brokenness in her life that someone would come along just to be nice to her. It, it's not computing. And so she's conditioned to cover the truth, to hide the pain, to put on a good face, to coexist with a painful past and dismal prospects future, no longer living with hope. See, this is a woman who merely exists in the context of lost dreams, lost plans, lost hope. And then Jesus did something to her that she had no answer for. He says to her, just go get your husband. Bring him back out here. Go get your husband. Bring him back. Now she has nowhere to run. Because he didn't, he didn't stay casual with her. He wasn't using metaphors anymore. He wasn't using water as a reference point. Now he puts his finger on the thing that most identified her in her life, her brokenness, her pain, her wounds. Five husbands and now a sixth man. The thing in her mind that most identified her as a person were her mistakes and her failures and her sin. She's there all alone. It's noon. The women of the village come to gather water in the morning when it's cool. She's there at noon, high noon. She's alone. This means she doesn't have friends. She doesn't have association. There isn't, there isn't a social network for this woman. And she believes about herself that she gets exactly what she deserves. This is the life that she has earned for herself, this loneliness, this pain, this despair, this isolation. Without hope, there's no hope for her. And now Jesus is putting his finger right on that pain, right on that spot. I think it's in these next few moments that the woman breaks. In eternity, uh, I believe we're going to be able to pull up, you know, in some kind of amazing way, supernatural way, so that you can view all of these biblical events in real time, you know, 3D. I'm going to go to this moment. I want to see how this woman responds. My hunch is that at some point shortly thereafter, 
she spins away from Jesus and she starts to run. And as she runs back toward the village, I think she breaks open. And all that pain, all those wounds, all that rejection, all of that abuse starts pouring out of her. I imagine her running and sobbing and moaning, trying to imagine what's happening to her. And by the time she gets to the village, she's saying to everyone, come and see. Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Well, he didn't actually tell her everything she'd ever done. Just that one area of her life, which most identified her. Let me remind you that God looks at us just as he looked at this woman, and he sees more than our failure. No, he only sees my failure. No, he doesn't. Now listen, God will never overlook your sin, but he will always look beyond it to who you can become, to the person he has made you to be, and to give you a hopeful future. He always looks beyond it. So God views us through our potential. He sees you through your potential. Hang on to that. So powerful. Now, the last thing that we can learn from this woman, it's really great news. And it's the way of hope. The way of hope. How do you find hope? When hope has been lost, when your future is completely hopeless, how do you recover hope in your life? There are two easy steps. This woman took them, and anyone can take them in order to find hope. The first step was this. And it's not easy, but it's pretty clear. The first step is recognize your failures. We all have to acknowledge our story, confess our sins, confess our mistakes, admit to God the things we've done wrong. We have to recognize our failures. This is called repentance. This is called acknowledging the need for someone else to help me. And this is what the woman did. So she recognized her failure. And the second step to reclaim hope is to turn to Jesus. Not to, not to spirituality, not to uh, a New Year's resolution, not to uh, better relationship habits, not to a change in attitude about who you are and how you go through the world. All of those things may help. But the only way to restore hope is to turn to Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved than the man Christ Jesus. We must turn to Jesus. We must preach this. We must teach this. We must encourage this with anyone and everyone we meet. This is why we plant churches all over America and other parts of the world right now. This is, this is why we have spent so much time and energy going to other places in our community 
and offering hope to people who are living without that hope. The hope is found in Christ, in Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by me. We shouldn't flinch around this message. We shouldn't equivocate around this message. We should preach it clear and clarion and straight that the hope of eternity is found by turning our lives to Jesus and giving him the opportunity to be our savior. She said in verse 19, sir, I can see you're a prophet. Okay, first step. Verse 29, could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? She asked the question. Verse 42, and we know this man really is the savior of the world. Amazing. So if you're away from God, you're not sure about your personal faith. Listen to me. The only way to experience new life, living water, healing for your past, hope for your future is to recognize your life as it is right now and who Jesus really is. He is your only hope. He alone can take away your sins, cleanse your heart, heal the wounds of your past, and give you hope. A new life and a new story comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where an amen goes in the sermon right there. I suppose there's no greater witness than a changed life. Would you agree? You know people like this, don't you? People who are on one road, headed toward destruction, hopelessness. And they recognize their mistakes and they turn to Jesus. Their lives have been transformed. I'd get a witness in the room today, couldn't I? Of that story. Uh huh. He's the answer. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So she admitted the truth about her life. She admitted the truth about Jesus. And she admitted the truth about these things to others. Let me conclude by saying your story of today does not have to be your story of tomorrow. Talking to someone, maybe not in the room today, but certainly online, I'm speaking to you today. He can give you the beginning of a new story right now. The Bible promises that if you give your life, you turn your life to Jesus, that he will take what's old and push it away from you and make everything brand new. New start, new beginning, second chance, third chance, fourth chance. He's the God who can make things new in your life. He will meet you in your current moment bring healing to your past and hope for your future. Recognize your mistakes and turn your life over to Jesus and hope will be restored and your story completely changed. Amen. Let's pause and pray about these things. Lord, we thank you for this amazing story. We thank you for the profound way that you touched this precious woman so valuable to you so misunderstood by so many, broken, misplaced. But you saw in her the potential that you made her. And so God, we recognize this amazing power that you have to transform life. Maybe you're within the sound of my voice today, friend, and you need, you need a change. You need hope. You know you're on a dead-end path. 
Let me remind you the way to hope. Number one, recognize your failure. Acknowledge, acknowledge your story. Confess your sins and mistakes. And number two, turn to Jesus. Let me help you. Pray something like this. Oh God, I'm sorry for all my failures, my mistakes, all the things I've done wrong. I've made a lot of poor decisions. I've gone the wrong way. But I believe that Jesus Christ is my hope, that he is the Savior that I need. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse my heart, my mind, my past. I invite you into my life to be my Savior and my Lord. Thank you, God, that you are the one who can bring a new beginning and restore my hope. So heal my past and give me hope for the future. I pray in Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen. Would you stand with us?